you can't even really think, are there good choices or bad choices? You can only think, are there better choices or worse choices? And how might I make a better decision or how might I be slightly better today than I was yesterday? And that's the best we can do. If you've ever been surprised by your own thoughts, well, you're not alone. From the time we're born to the time we die, we spend our lives meeting strangers, including the one within. We also spend our lives learning about many of those strangers and turning them into colleagues, friends, and family. In this podcast, host Charlie Bressler talks with fascinating people on their musings about family, community, work, helping others, and getting to know the stranger inside ourselves. Where do we fit in the world we all inhabit together? Charlie Bressler, the co-founder of The Life You Can Save and former president of a large international retail company, investigates ideas that he has been musing on since he obtained his PhD in clinical and social psychology way back in 1984. Welcome again to Musings About Ourselves and Other Strangers. Today, it is a privilege to be musing with Mike Shore, the Emmy and Peabody Award-winning creator of acclaimed NBC comedy The Good Place, as well as the co-creator of Parks and Recreation, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and Rutherford Falls. He has been nominated for 19 Primetime Emmy Awards, winning two of for his work on Saturday Night Live between 1997 and 2004, and also one for The Office. Mike was raised in Connecticut and received a BA in English from Harvard University, where he was editor of the prestigious satirical magazine, The Harvard Lampoon. He lives in Los Angeles with his wife, J.J. Philbin, and his son and daughters, age 14 and 12. Perhaps most relevant to our musings today, Mike is the author of the recently published How to Be Perfect, The Correct Answer to Every Moral Question. I'm so glad that Mike has learned the answers to all our moral questions and can help guide us toward perfection. On that note, welcome, Mike. Well, Mike, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm really pleased to be able to get a chance to chat with you on air here. We'll go over a lot about your book, but then I might switch gears and just ask you some questions about moral philosophy uh, that are not necessarily related to your book, or, or at least part of your book. Sounds great. Thank you for announcing beforehand that you were going to shift gears so I wasn't caught unawares when you shifted. Well, <laughs> anyway, Diana, my wife and I have been really enjoying listening to How to Be Perfect, your book, and I'd love it if you could... Talk about what sparked your interest in philosophy, moral philosophy in particular, and a little bit about your book. I'd like you, if you could tell the listeners what the book is about, and I not say pitch it, but I'd love for people to be inspired <laughs> to listen to it, because I think it's good for everyone. Oh, thank God I don't have to pitch it anymore. My interest in philosophy, moral philosophy in particular, started with the very casual, I would say interest in the subject stemming from a an orientation, I think, toward rule following. I've always been a rule follower. I was always concerned with what I was supposed to be doing, what the structure within which I was working, whether that was school or a job or just the rules for gathering in certain places in public, you know, don't stand here, please, don't exit through this door, like that stuff always for some reason was very important to me. And I was always concerned with not breaking rules. Virtue had to do with following rules at that stage of your development. In my mind, yes. That's what virtue was, really. It's so interesting because we couldn't be more different. I grew up thinking that I should be breaking rules all the time. <laughs> I had a science teacher who used to brag that I was the first person he ever kicked out of class when he started <laughs> teaching. So we definitely started in very different directions. I've often said that my greatest fear in life is that a person in some kind of uniform shows up and points at me and says, you're not allowed to be here, like whatever, for whatever reason. So I took a couple philosophy classes in college, not many. I was an English major. I didn't, I liked philosophy, but it wasn't my chosen field. And then in young adulthood, I had a number of events occur that sort of pushed me more and more toward reading philosophy in order to get a better understanding of 
what I was trying to do or why I was trying to do it. So again, as a, almost a hobby, I started reading philosophy just so I could have a vocabulary for myself to explain my actions, to, to understand why what I was doing was good or bad. And then there were a couple kind of big events in my life, which I write about in the book, that really kind of pushed me in that direction. One of them, very briefly, was my wife was involved at a fender bender. There was a police officer nearby, looked over the cars, didn't see any damage, said, I don't see anything here. My wife and this guy exchanged numbers, went on their way. And then we got a claim from the guy for like $836 because he said the whole fender needed to be replaced. I went and looked at the fender and there was an extremely faint line on it. And I got very angry because I thought this is absurd. This is an $836 worth of damage. And it happened to be happening during Hurricane Katrina. And I made an offer to the guy. I said, how about this? I'll donate $836 to the Red Cross for Katrina relief if you agree to just drop this claim. And he said he would think it over. I told all my friends what had happened. I was very riled up. And they started pledging more and more money to the Red Cross if this guy would drop his claim. Very quickly, it sort of spread and went viral. I started a blog to keep track of the pledges and everything. The guy didn't know any of this was happening. And eventually it got up to like twenty-five dollars or $30,000 had been pledged to the Red Cross if this guy agreed not to get his car fixed. And I suddenly, one night I was, it, it all happened in about 48 hours. And my wife and I were talking about the latest developments and we both had this sinking feeling at the same exact moment that there was something very wrong about what we were doing. And we didn't know what it was. I was like, oh no, I've done something wrong, but I don't know why. And I wrote a bunch of emails to a bunch of philosophy professors and said, I'm in this really weird dilemma. Can you talk this out with me? And I started reading essays and, and just Googling like, you know, what is moral philosophy basically? And uh, I had a lot of really fascinating conversations the next day and the next day or two about, you know, about different theories of philosophy. Ended up calling the guy and sort of copying to the whole thing and apologizing and sending him a check. And it sort of had a, a slightly nervy but good outcome. And it really made me fully understand that in order to, uh, to better get a grip on my actions and to determine whether they are doing good or bad in the world, I needed to be well-versed in the subject. And I really got interested in it. I really started reading a lot of stuff. And that eventually led to the creation of the show, The Good Place, which ran on NBC for four years, which was a show about people who have lived their lives, ended up in the afterlife, and are basically told whether they lived good or bad lives and why. The genesis of that was, were, were moments like that fender bender that really just sent me personally searching for an understanding of why we do what we do and whether it's good or bad. It's a really great book, How to Be Perfect. And I, I think the idea of striving to be perfect is something that everybody can really enjoy thinking about, uh, be challenged by. So I encourage people to either listen to the book or, or read the book and even more importantly, to think about what it means to them and how it can affect their lives. Diane and I have certainly, as I said, enjoyed reading it. Can you elaborate on the concept, and I'm not going to pronounce the word correctly, the word Ubuntu? Sure. Because uh, I think it's so, in many ways, contrary to the individualistic nature of how we live in the United States and Canada. Before I do that, just to be clear, the, the book is called How to Be Perfect. It's a joke, right? They're, they're, the, the point is that yeah. the, perfection is not only impossible, it's a bad idea to even try to attempt. It's more about trying to just make better choices instead of worse choices. And the reasons why, the, you know, the things we do might be a little bit better or a little bit worse than than the other option. I just wanted to make that clear that nobody thought that I was, that was my biggest fear that people would actually think I was saying like, no, we should all be perfect. Like, just <laughs> that's like not, you, right? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, if you, they look at the cover of the book, they should be able to get the idea. Yes. By the fact that the cover gives that away. I, ho I, I hope so. Yeah. And if, it, and if it yeah. doesn't just know that I'm kidding. So Ubuntu, it's a, a little bit of a philosophy and a little bit of an ethos, I would say, or just a, a way of being that is sort of native to various countries in Southern Africa. It has different 
names in different places, but the idea is the same. It's best described, I think, through aphorisms and a sort of very simple and straightforward sayings, one of which is, I am because you are, and you are because I am. Another is, a person is a person through other people. It's essentially the idea that our happiness is dependent on the happiness of others and vice versa. So there's an interview you can see online with Nelson Mandela where he's trying to explain it. And what he says is essentially, when a stranger came to town, the people in whatever village he was visiting or she was visiting would get him or her food and a place to sleep and treat him or her exactly the way that they would treat their brother, sister, mother, father, son, daughter, anybody. And it wasn't just like, be kind to your neighbor. It was literally the idea that that person's health and happiness and safety and viability are as important as your own. What struck me about it was it appears to me to be the exact inverse or maybe converse of what you would think of as the origins of Western or European philosophy, because all of Western thought essentially in, in the modern era begins with the famous, uh, I think, therefore I am, right? That's, the, that's a sort of fundamental idea of Western philosophy. So just think for a second about the differences between I think, therefore I am, and a person is a person through other people. It's, those are essentially inverted ideas. The idea that you treat other people not just the way you treat yourself, but that their happiness is your happiness and their pain is your pain and their suffering is your suffering. That is a, a really lovely idea. And I think that you can draw some pretty simple conclusions about the difference in the sorts of societies that spring up from those two ideas. If you subscribe to the idea that a person is a person through other people, suddenly suffering in any part of the world becomes your suffering as well. You feel the same pain that someone on the other side of the world feels, whether that's a person in Ukraine whose school was just bombed or a person in Malawi who is suffering from, you know, having unclean water to drink or a person two towns over who got hit by a tornado. You can no longer, if you subscribe to this ethos, ignore their pain and suffering or pretend it doesn't exist. You know, most of the book is focused on folks like Aristotle and Kant and John Stuart Mill and, and Peter Singer, for that matter. But I really wanted to write about Ubuntu because it's not a commonly known thing here in America. And it seems in some ways to be an antidote for the sorts of, I don't know, selfish behaviors or individualistic behaviors. We have a deep-seated belief in America and in other parts of the Western world that individualism is to be heralded and celebrated and that an individual's freedom, liberty, consciousness, whatever, is paramount or primary in terms of the, in the hierarchical list of things that matter. And there is certainly good that comes from that. There are things like innovation and invention and freedom that comes from prizing the individual above all else. There's also bad that comes from it, right? There's selfishness and arrogance and, and callousness that comes from celebrating the individual at the expense of the community. And Ubuntu really seems like the antidote to a lot of those ills. I love the concept, I guess, in terms of my own striving to be perfect. And I'm, I'm so far away in every area where I have goals. But Ubuntu would be a way of me thinking about one of the things that I'm really striving for, having grown up in this individualistic society. And it's certainly a concept that is very relevant for what we're trying to do at The Life You Can Save, the organization that I co-founded with Peter Singer, where we're trying to get people to understand that all lives are of equal value and that their happiness can be extended through the happiness of other people, even when they're really far away. And interestingly enough, our deputy director, Stacy Black, lives in Cape Town, South Africa, and although she's a white South African, not a black South African, to me, she exemplifies being very far along towards living this philosophy and the way she lives her own life. So I think we need to try to emphasize this idea, maybe even feature it more and extend this concept to people as they strive 
in their own way to be better people. So I really appreciate you bringing it to the fore. I'm going to switch gears for a second and ask you something about your own personal opinion, recognizing these are just your opinions. But I wanted to ask you what you think at this stage, the three most pressing problems are in the world today. Oh, my God. <laughs> I didn't warn you I was going to ask you that. <laughs> you told me you're going to switch gears. You didn't say you're going to switch gears to a question that's impossible to answer. Well, let's see. Right now, here, December 21st, 2022, I think the the biggest problem in America and perhaps some other Western countries there's an almost fetishistic belief that an individual's liberty is is paramount and you saw that certainly during the pandemic where i believe for the first time in human history every single human being on earth was suffering from the same problem right i don't think that's ever happened before even like world war ii their entire globe is swept up in this conflict there are still pockets of the world that aren't not unaffected by it, but it's not the most impressing matter for them, right? The the heating of the planet is also one of those things, but that's happening very slowly and has been happening very slowly for 100 plus years. The pandemic was, oh my God, everyone in the world could get this disease and we all have the same problem. And that means we all have certain responsibilities and certain actions that we can take or not take. And what happened in America, as I'm sure you'll, sure you'll remember, is a decent chunk of the country rebelled against the idea that they had to do anything, right? There were people who said, I'm not wearing a mask. I'm not going to stand six feet away from anybody else. I'm not going to get this vaccine. And the reasoning, in large part, was, I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to. I, that's an impingement upon my liberty and my freedom. A friend of mine had made a great comment about COVID, which was, it's essentially a black light, right? It's like, we turned off the lights on the world, and we sh shined a black light across the globe. And it simply revealed problems that were already there that we maybe couldn't see very clearly. But once that black light hits, then you see all of the weird stains on the on the couches and the chairs and the floors and the walls and all the dirt and grime and the grit that was invisible before COVID hit. And I think the single biggest thing it revealed was this is a real problem. This fetishistic belief and a sort of blind, unthinking application of this belief to all matters was just a rot. It was a rot at the core of our society because what was being asked of us was fairly small, right? It was buy a $2 mask and wear it around so that you don't kill someone's grandmother. That's not a big ask. That is a very small ask in a moment of crisis that affects everybody on the globe at the same time. It's hard to think of something that's bigger than that because that suggests that every time we encounter a global problem or a national problem or a statewide problem or anything like that, we're going to face this same kind of resistance from folks who simply believe that nothing ranks above individual liberty on the scale of importance. You also, once you sort of identify that, I think you can move to the second biggest problem, which also affects everybody, which is climate change. There is no country or no person in the world who will be unaffected by climate change over the next hundred years. There are island nations that will not exist fairly soon because the water will just rise and sweep over them. It's already happening. You know, people are frantically trying to build seawalls and trying to figure out ways to keep the water out of their houses and their cities. I don't know whether it will work or not, but the point is it never should have gotten to this point. And the reason that it has gotten to this point in large part is the third biggest problem, which is that money and power and influence is weighted very uh, inappropriately and unfairly in the world, really in the Western world, significantly in the Western world, but all over to the point where decisions that are made by governments are not being made as they should be in the best interests of the people who live in those nations, but rather are being made simply to benefit those who are wealthy and have power and influence. And this is hardly a revelation. This is something people have been talking about for a very long time. 
but the essential unfairness of it, the essential unfairness of the fact that in this country and in other democracies or supposed democracies, we elect people to represent us. And instead of representing us, they act only in the best interests of the folks who give them the most money. There's something so obviously and irritatingly awful and unfair about that, that it's like a daily source of stress in my life, as I think it is in the lives of a lot of people. It's just infuriating. You know, you you watch as it happens. You watch as folks who represent, let's say, constituencies that have a lot of coal miners. Well, they make their decisions based on the coal industry. And the coal industry is absolutely ruining the world. <laughs> it just is. I like, can't possibly <laughs> imagine which senator you might be talking about. I, who knows? I'm just, this is off the top of my head. I'm not thinking of anybody in particular, <laughs> but uh, the, this is a real veil of ignorance thing, right? So John Rawls, the famous contemporary philosopher, his probably greatest contribution, most famous contribution to philosophy is the idea of this veil of ignorance, which is that you ought to make decisions for a society before you know what role you will play in that society. So ideally, you make rules for your society, and then after all the rules are agreed to, you then find out whether you are a senator or a baseball player or a night watchman or a nurse or anything, and you have agreed those rules are fair in his mind because you have agreed to them without having any idea how they will affect you. You weren't influenced by how much money you have or how much status you have. And I think if you could go behind a veil of ignorance, you would obviously say, look, it's really sad that there are folks whose whole lives and whose for generations have been coal miners. It's sad to say your job is no longer one that our society can afford. You need to change your whole life. You need to move to a different place or get a different job or work in a different industry because coal is very, very bad for the planet and, and the mining of coal and the burning of coal or other fossil fuels for that matter. It's ruining the planet that we all live on. So I know it sucks. I'm sorry that this is going to negatively impact you particularly, but you are one of 8 billion people. And the other 7.999 billion people on the planet are being adversely affected by the industry in which you work. So we got to get away from it. Obviously, we would all say that if we were behind a veil of ignorance, but because we're not, those folks can have an undue influence over a very important vote or two in the United States government on a day to day basis. Maybe the biggest problem is that there is not an actual functioning government that seeks only to represent the best interests of the people that they serve, but rather seeks to benefit those who have money, power, status, influence, that sort of thing. So I'm going to ask you maybe one level more difficult question, or maybe it'll be an easy one. How do these problems that you identified, I think quite articulately, how do these problems affect you personally in a very personal way or professionally or both? I think they affect me in a couple of ways. They affect me like they affect everyone else in that I suffer the ill effects of having money, status, power, and influence warp or distort the actions of the people who purport to represent our best interests. We just managed to pass in this country the really the first ever climate bill. Far too late. I mean, it's what, 22 years, 21 years after An Inconvenient Truth came out, right? We've known about this problem for a long time. I read recently that the amount of carbon released into the world, into the atmosphere since that movie came out is greater than the combined amount of carbon that had been released before the movie. So <laughs> there's no excuse, right? We've known about the problem very widely. Yeah. That movie won an Oscar, for God's sake, for best documentary. And we it's gotten worse since it came out. I wonder how Al Gore is going to hear about that statistic. <laughs> he probably doesn't feel too good about it. No, probably not. So Obviously, I suffer in the same way that other folks suffer, but I also suffer, as many people do, I'm not alone in this, because I face a number of moral decisions every single day that shine a, a light on the fact that I personally, despite my beliefs, am constantly having to do things or make decisions that run counter to my belief system. That is the nature of the world we live in. You can't escape betraying your own ideals for the simple reason that in the, the world is so interconnected, the systems that are in place are so complicated, 
that every time you buy a pair of shoes or you drive a car or you do anything, you are doing something, if you think about this stuff, that you would argue you shouldn't be doing. And it's impossible to get away from that. My family and I are going on a trip. And I think a lot about the fact that the plane that we're in is burning a tremendous amount of fuel. Airplanes are a huge contributor to global warming and climate change. And I'm, I'm complicit because everyone is complicit. There are no perfect lives. There are no ways in the modern world really to avoid being a contributor to a problem, whatever that problem is. This is really the essence of the book. The question then becomes, how might I make slightly better choices than the ones I was going to make? You can't think of it as, are there perfect choices or imperfect choices? You can't even really think, are there good choices or bad choices? You can only think, are there better choices or worse choices? And how might I make a better decision or how might I be slightly better today than I was yesterday? And that's the best we can do to be aware of all of the problems that affect folks, not only ourselves, but everybody. And then to think on a day-to-day -day basis, on a moment-to-moment -moment basis, is there something I can do that's slightly better than what I was about to do that doesn't cause me too much pain or suffering or agony or money or time or anything else? And then you try to make those choices instead. And I think those sorts of incremental changes for the better in all of our actions are what we should all be striving for. How do you think having that mindset of trying to do better and having being aware of these problems that you outlined should, I'm using the word should, affect people's giving or their charitable donations? But is there something about the way you describe the problems in the world that could have an impact on people's philanthropy, which is obviously something we're very interested in? And the life you can save and that Peter and I have been working on? Well, there's a couple things. I mean, I learned about the effective altruism movement, I think from just my own reading and my own sort of poking around about, okay, how if I want to make a slightly better choice than one I was about to make, well, that applies to charitable giving, right? So I came to the conclusion that not all charities are created equal for various reasons. One of them being we're all a little bit, I think, or have been in the past unclear about what exactly happens to the money that we give, right? You give $1,000 to an organization that's searching for a cure for cancer. Well, you vaguely understand that that money is going to pay for the salaries of research scientists or equipment in a lab or something. But you know, we still haven't cured cancer, right? So you're sort of like, what What exactly happens to that money? And is one organization that's trying to cure cancer better than another and why? And is curing cancer more important than curing Alzheimer's or ALS or any other disease? Are we closer or further away? Does one of these places need the money more than another place? Hurricane relief. Okay, I'm I'm seeing images of a hurricane destroying a city and I want to do something. Well, what do you do? I'll give money to the Red Cross. I kind of know what that means. The Red Cross will helicopter into that city and they'll get clean water and food and medicine for folks who need it. And they'll set up uh, shelters and health centers and stuff. But you get lost a little bit, I think, when you just throw money at an organization and don't totally know how it's being used. And then, even worse, you read from time to time about charitable organizations that are misusing the funds, not just that they're ineffective, that they're stealing money. There was an article about St. Jude Children's Hospital, which is a very famous uh, children's hospital that we've all heard of. That, And you think, well, how in the world could I not want to give money to a children's hospital? My God. And then you read that this organization in particular, and I don't remember all of the details, not only is hoarding the money and not dispensing it in the ways that you would imagine it would be dispensed, but that the folks who run the organization are using it to you know, pay leases on their Mercedes or something. And you're like, well, that wasn't the intention that I had when I <laughs> gave money to a children's hospital. So donating money to a charity can go very quickly from this is the best thing I can do right now to, oh no, I've just paid for the lease on a Mercedes for the executive director of some organization. Well, 
now there are so many problems with that. Number one is obviously it's not going where you thought it was going. It's not being used for what you thought it was being used, but also you're complicit at some level in the diversion from a resource that could be used for a lot of good to a, to something that is just a, a horrible, horrible crime. Like you're, you're a criminal. Effective altruism was a relief to me in some ways because some organization, it turns out, has done an extensive amount of research and has definitively, scientifically, mathematically proven that this organization or this charity will use your money the way you want it to be used and will maximize the good that, that a dollar can do in the world. And that is a huge relief to learn about that if you're a person who cares about such things. The security of knowing to the greatest degree possible that when you're giving money to a certain charity, that money is not only being used for what you want it to be used for, but also is maximizing the value of the money you're donating. Folks that don't have unlimited resources to spend, most of us, we have a certain amount of money that we have earmarked for charitable donations. And it's a nice thought that you can be sure when you give money to organizations that have been thoroughly vetted and researched, it's a really nice thought to know, okay, this is definitely doing what I want it to do. And that doesn't mean that the only worthy organizations out there are ones that have been given the stamp of approval by GiveWell or, or any other organization that does a lot of research. But it certainly means that given the choice between random charity A and heavily vetted charity B, you're better off giving to heavily vetted charity B if your goal is simply to maximize the amount of good you can do in the world. I remember being incredibly ill years ago. My temperature was 40 degrees, that's 104 for those who may need a Fahrenheit conversion. I was so heavily congested that when I coughed, I would struggle to catch my breath. My bank account was in the negative, so there was no money for doctors or medication. I had no gas left in my car, and all I had left to eat was yogurt. The fear and helplessness that I felt in that moment was very real. I'm incredibly grateful to say that situations like this are no longer a reality for me, but there are millions of people living in situations that are far worse than the experience I just described. Hi, my name is Stacey Black. I'm the Deputy Director at an organization called The Life You Can Save. We provide donors with a vetted list of charities that are proven to be highly effective in helping people living in extreme poverty. To view a list of these charities, to receive a free book, or assistance in making a donation, please visit thelifeyoucansave.org slash musings. One of the things about The Life You Can Save and the 25 or so charities we recommend is we absolutely know that there are other charities out there that could be just as good and some maybe that are even better. But at least with the 25 charities you can find at thelifeyoucansave.org, we can say with a fair degree of certainty, as much as one can have in life, that these are a safe place to put your money and that they will benefit people in a very impactful way. And so that is what we're trying to accomplish. But there's still one issue there that people resist with either Give Well or The Life You Can Save, and that is all that money is going to Sub-Saharan Africa or South Asia. But what about our folks at home? What do we do about them? Aren't they just as important or more important? This is a legitimate beef, I think, that folks have with effective altruism. I think of it as the library dilemma. That's my own name for it in my head. So I love libraries. I've always loved libraries. My vice is that I collect books and I spend money on books. But I, every year, donate to the Los Angeles Public Library System. And if you are being a strict, effective altruist, you would say, don't do that. Libraries are fine. They're funded publicly. And they don't have any life-saving utility, right? They're not the majority of cases, no one's life is being saved by a library. So if you have $100 to give, don't give it to a library or a symphony orchestra or an art museum. Give money to an organization that, that deworms a river in Malawi and can actually save a human life. The part of the movement that, that I run into conflict with, and it's, it's not a serious conflict, but it is a conflict, is that. There are places and organizations and groups all throughout the world that people have personal connections to. My daughter plays the clarinet and she has really fallen in love with the clarinet. 
And every year I do this thing where both of my kids, I say, you have $100 to give to a charity. What kind of charity do you want to give it to? And I let them choose. And usually in the past, my daughter has chosen an animal-related charity because she loves animals. My son has generally chosen a sort of social, like a Black Lives Matter type group that seeks social justice. And this year, I believe, I haven't asked her yet, but I believe my daughter is going to choose some kind of orchestra because she's fallen in love with the clarinet. And I want only to encourage in her and in my son the idea that giving money to other people is important and that if she loves the clarinet and wants to give money to an orchestra, I am not going to lecture her on how her money would go further if she would give it to an organization that deworms rivers in Malawi for many reasons. But one of them that I think is important is there are real benefits to me in simply connecting emotionally and spiritually with organizations that create art and opportunities for folks to borrow books for free and all sorts of different things that are not life or death matters. So it's not just shouldn't we care about folks from closer to home? Of course we should. We should care exactly the same about the lives of people in the next town over as we should about people in sub-Saharan Africa. We should, all of these people are equally important. Now you also have to do calculations about, well, what are the, what, what about access to resources, right? If folks in the next town over uh, have access to far more governmental and NGO resources than people in sub-Saharan Africa, well, that maybe changes your calculation of of where your money ought to be spent. But I don't think there's anything wrong either with saying, this is something that's really, really important to me. It's part of my life. It's part of my own sense of integrity, my wholeness, my worldview, my ethos, whatever. And so I wanna also give money to them. I don't think that's wrong and I don't think it should be discouraged. I think that the work that The Life You Can Save does, that Peter Singer does, is equally important because he's saying essentially, that's okay as long as you are also thinking about all of those people in places that you don't have a personal immediate connection to, that it isn't a symphony orchestra that needs a new clarinet player or a, a, a pet adoption center in the next town over or whatever. You, need, you can't ignore folks in sub-Saharan Africa and, and only focus on the people the next town over. You have to think about the whole world holistically. That beef, which is very frequently expressed, is one that I, I identify with. I have, I have sympathy for that uh, worldview and that outlook. And I don't think we ought to discourage folks from making donations to organizations they are personally connected to. When I was concerned with people in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, you know, which led me down the, the wrong path in that instance, but I'm not sympathetic to the argument that you ought to say, okay, it's really bad that Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans and those people are suffering, but your money could go further if you donated it to an organization in Sub-Saharan Africa. Your money might go 10% further in terms of saving people's lives or, or doing good in the world. Uh, so don't help the people in, <laughs> who suffered from Hurricane Katrina. I, that, that's where I get a little bit waylaid when it comes to the effective altruism movement for the simple reason that moment to moment, day to day, circumstances change, lives change, people's outlooks change. And it might be of primary importance in that moment to say, no, I'm sending my money to New Orleans. And in my case, I had a very good friend who lived in New Orleans and whose father had just passed away. And the funeral had been like two days before the hurricane and they had to hustle and, and move everything up and, and flee the city because they had to get out of the path of the hurricane. So my emotional connection in that moment to the city of New Orleans and to folks who were suffering there was of primary importance to me. And I, I would not have been open to the argument that I shouldn't donate there because there were people who were suffering more greatly in some other part of the world. Again, this is not right or wrong, good or bad, it's better or worse. And there's a lot of factors that go into making those decisions. Some of them are scientific and mathematical, and those are very important. And that's why organizations like The Life You Can Save have done such good work is because they've brought science and math into the equation and said, like, 
this is a guarantee. This is as close to a guarantee as you can get that your money is doing what you want it to do. But there are other issues here. There are emotional issues. There are uh, issues of, of wholeness, of integrity in terms of an individual's life. And, um, and those can't be ignored either, in my opinion. One of the things that we think about at The Life You Can Save is that currently of the massive amounts of money that Americans give in a very generous way, the most philanthropic nation in the world, 94% of those donations are going here to the United States and only 6% are going overseas. So the way I see it, and I think the way the messaging should be, is that there's got to be some sort of balancing going on that isn't currently going on. And we've also done a really terrible job of finding a way to give people that warm glow that they get from helping a friend in New Orleans or returning their shopping cart at the store when they say to themselves, boy, I feel a little bit better because I'm the kind of person who returns their shopping cart. What we've done a terrible job with in our movement of philanthropy is helping feel, people feel that same warm glow when they save a kid's life from diarrhea or they help buy a malaria net. It's too distant. And I think if they're ever going to reverse this, 94% of money goes to the United States and only 6% goes overseas. We have to do a much better job of having people like yourself, Mike, tell stories that can really get people to feel that same sense of warmth. And it's very difficult to do. Yeah, I don't honestly know how to do it. I think it's a very difficult ask to try to make people get that hit of self-esteem and of, of a positive you know, endorphin flow when they send money to a place they will likely never visit, never see, never get a handle on what it actually looks like. It's a very abstract idea to donate money to an organization in sub-Saharan Africa that buys mosquito nets that prohibits mosquitoes from biting people and giving them malaria and killing them because they don't have access to vaccines or malaria medicine. So I wish I had a solution because I do think that if you live in America and a tornado or a hurricane or a flood hits a part of America and you see the images on your nightly news and you say, I want to do something to help, and you go online and you send a hundred bucks to the Red Cross, you do get that feeling of like, okay, I did something. Like the the sort of impotence that we all feel in moments like that is curable by donating money when you're looking, when you're staring at it, and you say to yourself, I've been to New Orleans, I've walked down that street, or a street in, in Miami, Florida, that is suffering from rising seawater. And you think, I want to help stop this. I want to stop global warming and climate change. I think that for some reason, and part of it is just, is probably xenophobia. Some of it is probably just the insular nature of our lives. It's a more abstract idea to give money to an organization that buys mosquito nets, in part because also, We've all been bitten by mosquitoes in America, and it's like this that's what we're stopping mosquito bites that's not that bad. We don't understand that a mosquito bite in sub saharan Africa can lead to malaria and death because that's not the situation that we have here at all it is a It is a very different situation. A mosquito bite means something very different to someone in uh, Nashville, Tennessee than it does in sub saharan africa so i I don't know what the answer is. I don't know whether it's more pictures, more stories, more images, more attempts to bring people closer to to sub-Saharan Africa. I don't possibly, potentially it is, although counter argument to that would be we've all seen for years, we've seen commercials on TV that say like, look at this child in Ethiopia, help this child in Ethiopia. I don't know how effective that was. I think sometimes it can backfire, right? It can It can be like, God, I'm just trying to watch TV like, why are you making me miserable and telling me that the whole world is full of these problems? It's just a very tricky thing. And I guess you just kind of keep gently pressing forward and trying to make people understand that $100 can mean four saved lives. You know, the other thing, that, side note here, prevention is a very difficult thing for people, at least in this country, to understand. Nobody likes prevention. That's why it's so hard to stop climate change. It's because you're talking about preventing something that will happen in the future as opposed 
to aiding people who have already suffered at the hands of something, right? If, if a hurricane hits a city and it destroys buildings and it displaces people and people don't have food and water, you give money because you're like, those people need food and water. Get it. Here's a hundred dollars, get food and water and bring it to those people who are suffering. Now you're talking in the other zone about preventing something that has not happened yet. And we are really bad at looking to the future and stopping things from happening before they happen, which is, again, it's like why, why it's so hard to raise awareness or to spend money on stopping climate change. It's like, it's, yes, I know it's happening right now, but the things that we keep hearing will happen which is, you know, mass migration and food shortages and lack of access to clean water. Well, right now I have plenty of food and clean water and I'm not being displaced from my home. So it's very hard to make folks give money to stop something from happening that has not happened yet. And that's another issue, I think, with with some of the charities, not all of them, but some of the ones that we're talking about being the most effective. They are about prevention and prevention is just not something we're well equipped to deal with. I agree with everything you're saying. There are a lot of our charities, as you point out, that are dealing with the 5 million children that are already dying, that are not necessarily just being prevented from dying every year. But I do think this isn't a pitch to you, Mike, although I, I'd love it to be, but I think it is going to take people like yourself or very clever people at storytelling and maybe even a few in the quote unquote marketing industry who are very clever at selling consumer products to take over, if you will, messaging for organizations like The Life You Can Save. Because I agree with you, we've done a, a, you're not using this word, but I'll use it, pretty dreadful job of relating to people as people instead of as mathematical machines. And that has worked with some people who are particularly given to thinking that way, but it has not worked with the overwhelming number of people who donate and donate ineffectively, but that means they still give to very good things that, that are near and dear to their heart, but it might not be as effective as donating to uh, a malaria charity or a charity that deals with kids who have diarrhea. All right. I just want to ask you as we get close, because you, I've taken a lot of your time, can you tell me if you have any projects upcoming that are either related or unrelated to what you've been talking about here today. So in a way, I'm asking you whether, how does all this affect your professional life? We saw it did with The Good Place. I'm wondering if there's more to come with Mike Shore or whether that was just one thing he was going to do and you're, you're going back to art sort of as art. Well, you know, The Good Place was explicitly, obviously, about moral philosophy. We talked about issues in moral philosophy in every episode you know, we discussed the various major theories of of ethics uh, that have existed in the last 2,500 years or so. That was really the show that, where that stuff was baked into the core of the show. I don't think I'll ever do, I shouldn't say never, it's unlikely that, I will, <laughs> that I'll ever do a show that's that specifically about issues of moral philosophy, but also I care about the subject a great deal. I think about it a lot. And I would venture to say that in most of the projects that I work on for the rest of my career, there will be, this stuff will be floating around in the background. That's kind of what I'm asking. Yeah, and, and I should also note, I'm hardly alone in that regard. I think it's probably true that all or most of anyone's favorite TV shows have been exercises in philosophy to some degree, you know? Pick any show that you uh, love over the last 20 years, you know, Breaking Bad or The Sopranos or Mad Men. There is an easy argument you can make that whether it's explicit or implicit, these shows are examining the choices we make, the moral weight of decisions. It's sometimes they're fairly explicitly dealing with issues of existentialism, for example. I think The Sopranos is maybe the greatest existentialist drama ever written, including, you know, the works of Camus and Sartre and of people who were, who are actual, the actual philosophers who are developing the theory. You can overlay philosophical reasoning on a lot of the greatest TV shows ever written. I'm hardly alone in applying philosophy to art or to television specifically. 
So I think it's probably fair to say that in the future, the stuff I work on will will do the same thing. I doubt that I'll ever have a character on a show hold up a copy of um, On Liberty by John Stuart Mill and start start uh, expounding on the nature of, of his theories. But all great art at some level is philosophical, I think. And I think I, I think and hope that my work will continue to sort of float around in that same area. I'm sure it will. I don't see how at this point, having delved into this to the extent that you have, you could help from having it permeate not only your day-to-day life as it seems to, but also your your work. One last thing. It's a very easy question, and I think I know the answer from having listened to the How to Be Perfect, but I think I know what you, how you will answer it. What do you think it means to live a moral life? Well, it starts with simply caring one way or the other whether the life you're living is moral. That's really what the book tries to argue, is that the single most important step in being a good person or in living a moral life is caring whether or not you're living a moral life. My friend Todd May, who helped me with the book and was a consultant on The Good Place, he was a a professor for a long time, a philosophy professor. He wrote a book called Death, which is really wonderful. And he says that basically death gives meaning to our lives and morality is how we navigate that meaning. We only know that we have a certain amount of time on earth I wonder why folks wouldn't think to themselves, I ought to live the best life I can while I'm here. I ought to make the best decisions I can. I'm going to get it wrong very frequently and I'll make mistakes and we all do. But what else is there? I mean, what are we doing? You're going to make mistakes. You're going to screw up. You're going to fail. Like, that's okay. As long as you're trying, you can let yourself off the hook when you fail. So to me, what it means is, doing a little bit of research. You know, the audiobook, my book is something like nine hours long. And it gives you a pretty decent overview of every significant moral philosophical theory since Aristotle. And there are plenty of other books besides mine that will do the same thing. So, so I think it's what it means really is doing a little bit of work to understand theories of morality, theories of ethics, and then doing your best to follow them whenever you can and make slightly better choices than maybe the ones that you would have made without understanding those theories. That's really all that I think anyone could ask of anyone else. Um, And that's what it means to me. Mike, thank you not only for being here, but for your thoughtful answers. And most of all, thank you for all your great work that you do outside of this and writing the book and The Good Place and all the work to come. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Musings About Ourselves and Other Strangers. Subscribe and join us. Our guests have varied experiences, different points of view, and interesting ideas about what it means to live a well-balanced moral life. We hope you'll share this podcast with those close to you. We'd also like to invite you to rate and review this podcast on whatever platform you use. And if you're interested in learning more about the life you can save and the charities we benefit, visit thelifeyoucansave.org musings.